Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Women's History. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kathleen D. K. Hill about her new book, Recasting the Vote, How Women of Color Transformed the Suffrage Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Cahill is an associate professor of history at Pennsylvania State University. In addition to recasting the vote, she is the author of the prize-winning book, Federal Fathers and Mothers, A Social History of the United States Indian Service, 1869 to 1932, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2011. Her research has appeared in a wide range of scholarly journals, including the Journal of Women's History, American Indian Culture and Research Journal, the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and Frontiers, a Journal of Women's Studies. I'm Tracy Brenvoyles, Associate Professor and Chair of Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and it is my great honor to be here with you today to talk about this powerful and important new book. Dr. Cahill, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love the New Books Network. I love listening to the podcasts, and I'm really thrilled to now be on one. (laughs) And we're thrilled to have you. This has been one of my favorite books um, of the last few years, Um, and I'm really excited to hear you talk a little bit more about it. Oh, thank you. Uh, (laughs) So before we turn to the content of the book, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Recasting the Vote. (laughs) Sure. Um, So I'm originally from Northern California, really pretty far north, um, and um, grew up there and ended up going to graduate school in Chicago. And then my first job was at uh, the University of New Mexico. So I've kind of moved around a bit before landing here at Penn State. Um, in terms of coming to the book itself, um, it, it really grew out of my first project, um, which as you mentioned, was a study of the federal Indian service, um, the employees of the Bureau of what becomes the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And in that book, I was particularly interested in the experiences of women, native women and white women who worked, um, for the BIA. And, one of the women that I kind of came across in that project um, is Marie Botno Baldwin, who's one of the, the women um, in this book. And um, so I had finished that book and I was sort of thinking about a second project. And I was actually started on a, an entirely different project altogether that we can talk about at the end. Um, but I also knew that the um, centennial of the 19th Amendment was coming up. And this was probably, I don't know, maybe 2015. So I was like five years down the road. That's plenty of time. Um, and Marie Botno Baldwin had been um, working in Washington, D.C. in the Bureau. And she had participated in the 1913 suffrage parade, um, the famous parade calling for um, an amendment to the Constitution and kind of reviving that struggle. And, um, you know, it struck me as I thought about what this anniversary would look like, that it probably wouldn't necessarily include Native women um, as part of the discussion. And I thought that that it needed to um, include Native women. And I sort of started digging into Marie Botno Baldwin's story, kind of thinking about why would she have been in this parade, 
kind of who else was in this parade? Were other Native women there? And I thought it would be an article. Um, But as I sort of kept going um, and looking through particularly digitized newspapers, and we can talk more about that, um, I realized that there was a much bigger story and a, a larger number of Native women, but also other women whose stories aren't often told as suffrage stories that were in fact participating in um, suffrage conversations and conversations about the right to vote and citizenship rights. Um, and so it became a much bigger project and ultimately a book. Um, so it was really exciting to write for the centennial, but it was also um, kind of a challenge. And, and I'm happy to talk further about that too. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Um, So one of my favorite things about the book and the way that you approached it is this central theme that our suffrage stories need to start in new places. Um, And recasting the vote sets the theme in motion right from the very first pages and particularly in chapter one. And I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about how you decided uh, to begin the book, how you decided when, where, and how to introduce your readers into the stories uh, that you're telling, and how you wanted to get your readers to think differently um, from the very get-go uh, about the story, uh, and particularly since it's a story that they might think that they already know very well. Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. And what I probably should have said when I introduced myself is that i um, I consider myself primarily um, a Western historian, a historian of the American West. And so that's really shaped my approach to American history um, because I came at, from the West and thinking of the West as a really multicultural, um, diverse space, um, a place in American history where, you know, for a long time, that was where Native stories were told in U.S. history Um, but also, again, um, kind of Asian American history and, um, you know, Latino, Latina history um, is really central to talking about the history of the American West. So I came out of those conversations and was really um, very much influenced by scholarship um, and scholars um, thinking about that, right, sort of from the West looking East. And most of our suffrage stories and suffrage scholarship really focuses on the East. Um, And while um, scholars of African-American history, and particularly African-American women uh, scholars, have really pushed uh, our suffrage stories beyond just thinking about white women, it's Mm -hmm. still pretty focused um, on the East and and kind of a black-white binary. So coming from Western history, um, I really wanted to kind of think about other ways um, in which women, all diverse groups of women were thinking about suffrage and where they were talking about suffrage. And so, you know, that really, for me, it was kind of natural to start in other places, um, in places Mm -hmm. that I was familiar with. Um, And building on scholarship, by people who had had been thinking, again, about kind of citizenship in particular um, in the West. So the book, I kind of start in two places. The introduction starts in one place and chapter one starts in one place. Um, And the introduction starts with that 1913 parade that I mentioned that I kind of came to the project through that parade and initially had imagined the book 
um, really focusing on the women in that parade and kind of following their stories out. But as it grew and I found other women that I wanted to talk about, that no longer really worked as a central organizing principle for the book, but I still use it for the introduction. It's a really famous parade. Any um, documentary that you watch on the suffrage movement will talk about it. Um, In particular, sort of the tension around um, Alice Paul, who was the organizer of the parade, her um, efforts to kind of keep Black women from participating and then attempting to sort of segregate the parade by having them march in the back, and then their resistance to that and insistence that they march um, throughout the parade. But again, when I was looking, the parade has Native women in it. Um, it has at least one Chinese woman um, in it, Both and both those groups were invited to be in it. Um, so that made me start thinking about, well, what are the racial kind of um, dynamics of the suffrage movement? Because those two groups um, had a really different experience than Black women in that parade. And so then I opened chapter one in 1890 in South Dakota. And I did that really quite deliberately um, for a number of reasons. One, there's a a suffrage um, campaign in the new state of South Dakota. It's the first year of statehood for South Dakota. And um, 1890 is significant in suffrage historiography as the moment that the National and American Women's Suffrage Associations kind of come back together. And it's sort of the next generation of suffrage activity. Um, But again, that date really focuses on the white women. And I wanted to say, let's take that date and look at it from a different place. And if you look at it from South Dakota, what you see is questions about Native suffrage and Native citizenship are equally as important as questions of white women's um, voting rights. And South Dakota, as I said, is having um, a referendum, but there are actually two on the ballot. One is... um, you know, should white women be able, or it's, sorry, should women uh, have the right to vote in the new state? And the other is, um, should Native people uh, be able to vote? And it and it's really, um, that question is around sort of allotment is happening, uh, right? The division of tribally held land and assimilation policy where Native people, the federal government's trying to quote unquote civilize them and incorporate them into the citizenry. And so the question of whether or not they'll be able to vote. Hmm. And so by starting there, and then of course, right, so that election happens in November of 1890. And a month later, uh, the massacre at Wounded Knee happens. And Wounded Knee is never discussed in terms of the suffrage movement, right? Um, But in fact, Anna Howard Shaw, who becomes the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association a few years later, um, had been in South Dakota campaigning and then makes um, a major speech at the the convention in February that pulls together sort of the suffrage campaigning in South Dakota, what happened at Wounded Knee, um, kind of Native women and also white women in this really strange speech that when you read initially doesn't make a lot of sense from our perspective, but she she saw these things as connected. So I wanted to start with why did she see them as connected and what does that tell us about stories that we've missed? So that's a long-winded answer, but starting in South Dakota, I think changes our perspective and, and encourages us to ask new questions. 
Yeah, and I think that that's exactly uh, what what it did. Um, and I remember, I think, underlining a line in every sentence of that chapter. <laughs> um, it, it it so powerfully kind of reorganized the way that I was thinking about both of those um, stories as being connected. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about each of these women whose stories you tell. So you've described the book as a collective biography. Uh, you give us the stories of six women who became active in suffrage campaigns. You trace their work and their lives. Tell us a little bit about who they are um, and why you decided to approach writing the book in this way as a collective biography. Uh, and how did you come to choose these six women as your central figures? <laughs> yeah, great questions. This was a hard book to figure out how to write and how to organize. Um, and so, um, as you say, I ended up um, writing what I call a collective biography. So I looked at um, six women. Um, three of them are indigenous women. Um, so Marie Botano Baldwin, whom I mentioned, she's Turtle Mountain Chippewa and French, um, was born in Pembina, um, uh, Chippewa or Ojibwe territory, but it becomes uh, part of North Dakota. And um, she moves to Washington, D.C. with her father to fight um, for treaty rights. He is um, an attorney and the, the tribal leaders send him to Washington as their attorney um, in the 1890s. And she goes with him um, and is working as his legal clerk. So um, I run into her later when she's working for the BIA. Um, but this kind of backstory of her as someone who starts her political career fighting for tribal sovereignty becomes an important part of the story. Um, the other two Native women are um, uh, Laura Cornelius Kellogg, who's a Wisconsin Oneida woman, um, and uh, also worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs briefly. Um, she uh, publishes a book in 1920 called Our Democracy and the American Indian that's um, a political theory of uh, tribal sovereignty. And the third woman is uh, Gertrude Bonin, or uh, Zitkalasa is um, her uh, pen name um, or her uh, Dakota name. And she is quite famous, and she actually... You know, I feel like uh, there's a lot of scholarship on her as um, a Native intellectual and an activist. Um, there's a great biography that I drew um, heavily on. But people hadn't really talked about her suffrage activity. And I initially wasn't going to include her, but she kind of just kept coming up. And particularly for um, discussions about what happens after 1920, I found her um, advocacy really important. And again, um, not something that people have really focused on. So those three women, they all work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. That really influences their um, advocacy kind of um, that's really aimed at uh, white Americans and particularly white American women. And so they are really actively involved in national conversations. Um, and, you know, there are Native women who are advocating for tribal sovereignty and um, kind of engaged in similar kinds of questions, but I don't uh, focus on them, um, people who are working more at the their tribal level. Um, so these three women really are uh, outward facing. Mm -hmm. um, the other three women that I write about, uh, one is a woman named Carrie Williams Clifford, who's African-American woman. She's a poet 
and um, just involved in all kinds of things. She is the um, founder and president of the Ohio Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, which was one of the um, state groups that forms part of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which is where a a lot of African-American women's suffrage work is happening. Um, Mm -hmm. And also conversations about, right, um, the violence that their community faces in terms of lynching and Jim Crow laws and, um, right, kind of uh, the urban massacres that are happening um, in these years and the, and the increasing um, prejudice and white supremacy um, of the early 20th century. And she is also in that 1913 Washington, D.C. parade, uh, which is sort of how I came to her. Um, and then um, a woman named Mabel Pinghua Lee, who uh, is not in the D.C. parade, but she's in the previous year's 1912 New York City parade, which is another major suffrage moment um, in suffrage historiography. And um, Mabel Lee and the Chinese women of New York City's Chinatown, and most of them are not um, able to become citizens, so uh, they are, they're not Chinese-American. Um, they're very central to conversations around that 1912 parade. Um, Mm. And so, which again is something that hadn't been part of the conversations in part, because I think people didn't have a framework. They didn't, you know, they might notice these articles and discussions about Chinese women um, in this parade, but didn't quite understand how it fit or why they were there. Um, Mm. And so my, I was trying to kind of, Give us that framework. And then the final woman um, is uh, Adelina Otero Warren or Nina Otero Warren from New Mexico. And she's very well known in New Mexico as a suffragist and um, a politician. Uh, but she's not well known outside of New Mexico or, or wasn't at the time. And as I was teaching there, um, and so her story sort of. Uh, really gave me a sense, again, of sort of another place that we don't usually think of as a site of suffrage activism, where some really interesting things were happening. So those are the six. And I feel like there was another part of the question, but (laughs) I don't remember what it was. That's great. No. Um, Yeah, their their stories come together in in really fascinating uh, ways. Um, So you did a a staggering amount of original research for the book. Um, And I wanted to ask um, what surprised you about these women's stories sort of as you were encountering them through um, your primary sources. Um, And after having written the book, what do you hope readers most remember from their lives? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, exactly. I did not expect to do this much primary (laughs) research. I thought it would be a much more synthetic um, text. And again, there are, I did draw on, you know, a number of these women, um, Nino Otero Warren, Gertrude Bonin, um, have biographies that I drew on. Um, uh, People like Judy Young had written about Chinese suffragists in the West. But it turned out that the women who I kind of ran into and was most, were most interested in didn't have um, as much written about them. Um, or again, their suffrage work wasn't central to what people had written about. Um, and so I ended up doing more. And as I mentioned, um, the digitization of newspapers was mm-hmm. a huge boon for this project. 
I couldn't have done it without that. Um, and I think that, that that's really going to change some of the stories we tell. It's part of the reason I was able to do this sort of collective biography because there were just so many small details about these women's um, lives and their political activity that I could find in these databases. And I could track them in um, sort of larger organizations whose papers have been digitized. So the National Women's Party or the NAACP papers where, you know, they're only mentioned a couple times um, and they might not be in an index, but because you can text search, you can find them. Mm-hmm. So it really changed the kinds of questions I could ask about them. Mm-hmm. And a few of them have archives. So Gertrude Bonin has archives at um, BYU um, and Nino Otero Warren um, has some papers at the um, state archives in New Mexico. I was really fortunate. Um, the Chinese Baptist Church, the first Chinese Baptist Church in New York City, which is still um, a functioning church, uh, that was a church that Mabel Lee's father founds, and she takes over as an administrator for several decades. Um, mm-hmm. And the the folks there, um, Bayer Lee, who's not related, but he's the current minister, and um, Robert Gee, who's one of the... Um, uh, on the church board, they were have been so generous. Um, they have uh, some of her papers, and have really um, been helpful to me in writing. But not, but so there was kind of a mix of traditional archives and then um, other suffrage um, collections, and then the newspapers. Mm-hmm. And um, putting it all together was where it got hard. Right? How do you write about six women without kind of here's this person and then this person and then this person. And what I ultimately hit on, um, and I think being a historian, it was somewhat natural, but it was just sort of hard to kind of weave together, was just using the chronology, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to really place these women in the context of the early 20th century and thinking about, right, kind of moments where their stories overlapped um, or moments where, again, we don't think about them as being suffragists, but when you kind of start lining up what's happening, you see that they are engaging and responding and um, influencing uh, conversations that white suffragists were having um, in ways that just hadn't quite been as visible until you kind of laid it out in this chronological order. Um, So each chapter follows a woman, but also is kind of... um, exploring the larger context of, you know, um, again, these sort of changing suffrage strategies, the shift to the national amendment, how that changes some of these women's strategies, um, you know, World War I, uh, the passage of uh, the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which does not enfranchise all of the communities that these women are advocating for, and so how they keep fighting for the right to vote after 1920. Um, so those big kind of turning, familiar turning points, um, again, looking at those from a different perspective. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I wonder, you know, so you, you preempted my conversation a little bit about um, sort of how you encountered the archive and talking about how um, digitization of archives kind of allows us to um uh, recreate uh, events and experiences in the past in new and different ways. Um, I wonder if you could um, maybe just talk a little bit about how that, um, y- you know, that that way of encountering the archive and um, maybe the 
um, certain gaps in the way that um, these women's lives have been documented and recorded. How does that contrast with the white suffragists who have um, been more frequently remembered as being at the center of the story? Uh, what are their archives like and, and what, what's that experience? Um, oh, that's uh, a great question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the things about the newspapers is on one hand, they're amazing. And there is all of this, you know, they're basically the social media of their day. So there's a lot of, you know, so-and-so spoke to this group today and here's what she talked about. Or, Mm. you know, this um, organization had this meeting and here's who was there, right? So the kind of little basic just how women were organizing and the kind of networks um, and connections that you might not could easily be overlooked, right? If you didn't have, um, you know, the the Washington, D.C. Women's Suffrage Club, um, Mm. If you don't have their records, you may not know that Gertrude Bonin spoke to them or, you know, was pretty active in um, kind of speaking to lots of groups around D.C., but I see that in the papers. But there's also a danger to the papers, and they require some sort of careful – you have to approach them carefully. So, for example, in one of the chapters – Um, I write about sort of the images of um, women of color. And I should say I use the term women of color. It's not my favorite term, but it was really the only term I could kind of um, use to talk about all of these women. I didn't want to use non-white, right, that kind of negative. Um, But what I think I'm doing in the book is is showing that women of color is also is not a collective group um, Mm -hmm. other than that white women often thought of them as others. Um, Mm -hmm. But they each have different experiences with some overlapping um, similarities, kind of the, that they face particular kinds of prejudice, um, right? That they, um, none of them have kind of full citizenship, uh, you know, full access to citizenship rights. And so it was a useful term um, that I mm-hmm. kind of try to undermine a little bit in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, one of the things about the newspapers, I wrote this chapter about sort of these stereotypes about women of color and how they get mobilized um, in suffrage conversations, both for and against suffrage. And um, uh one, I came to that chapter because I thought that a woman named Dawn Mist, um, a Blackfoot woman uh, from Montana, was in the Washington, D.C. suffrage parade, right? Newspapers for a month ahead of this parade run headlines that say this quote-unquote Indian princess Dawn Mist is going to be there. Um, there's even a couple papers after the parade that assert that she was in it. One runs a picture of her. And so for a while, I thought that she had been in it. right? Mm-hmm. But the more I kind of dug into that story, it seems like she wasn't there. Um, and she is not an actual person. She is a character in um, kind of the Great Northern Rail- Rail- Railroads um, PR machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and her she's based on a figure out of a novel that then the railroad kind of would hire Blackfeet women to um, portray and, and did send them around the nation on kind of these publicity tours. Um, 
And I think they plant the story and people run with it because it's a, it's, it would, as we would say, get clicks, right? It fills newspaper columns. It's of interest. But I don't think that, that, um, right, that Don Mist was actually in that parade. Um, mm-hmm. I, I haven't been able to actually confirm it. So it told me a lot about how uh, white Americans were using ideas about Indian women to think about suffrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, initially, I thought this, I kind of took it at, at face value, but I really had to um, do more research around it uh, to figure out that, again, there is a real woman who is acting, a real Native woman who, who is right, paid to act as this character. Um, there are actually three Native women <laughs> in the time period I'm looking at. She was sort of a, a known, uh, you were, quote unquote, the leading lady um, of the Glacier Park Indians. As the, as the railroad called them, but the character herself was um, really a cultural construction. Hmm. And then in terms of white women's archives, I think that's a great question. And I'll say that I drew really heavily on Lisa Tetrault's book, um, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Myth of Seneca Falls, which I think is fantastic and everyone should read, um, talking about how um, particularly Susan B. Anthony um, and Stanton uh, made sure that they kind of controlled the narrative by writing their six-volume history of women's suffrage mm-hmm. that became the place that, that suffrage stories started, right? Historians went there because it was sort of the first thing that was written. Um, and then that's where they started. And so that really shaped kind of the 20th century stories about suffrage. Mm-hmm. And the most – she has the most incredible story in that book where – Anthony is putting these, this history together and she asks women who've been involved in the movement to send her all of their, right, their paraphernalia, their archives. And she has this amazing archive in her attic. But when she finishes the project, she burns everything, right? Mm. And so, which is horrifying, um, but also a real sense of like, she wanted to control the narrative and she wrote her narrative and then she got rid of everything, you know? Mm. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those examples that uh, you just can't wait to tell your students about. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, I gasped <laughs> when I read it. I gasped. Mm, yeah. Oh, I'll, I, since you, you mentioned gasping, I'll just say that um, <laughs> I, I think I sent you a message when I was first reading the book that um, I gasped more in the first few pages of this book than, um, uh, than I tend to do. Um, and that speaks to how engaging um uh, your writing style and your research has been. Um, so I wanted to say that one of the things that's been most impactful about me or for me about um, the book and how you constructed it is that it really shows the reader. Um, it, it invites the reader into the lived experience of the suffrage movement and how incredibly diverse the experience of it was um, just sort of in an, uh, in an everyday sense. Um I wanted to to see if you could talk a little bit about how um, the white activists whose stories um, we often um, have heard really frequently, how did they encounter these um, women of color and indigenous suffragists? Um, And talk a little bit about that part of the book and and how did their choices sometimes to erase or even denigrate um, the important work of these activists of color, as you say in the book, um, how did that shape how we remember the movement today? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things um, when I 
first wrote a draft of the book, and thank you so much for saying that you enjoyed it, um, because I was trying to write it really to be pretty accessible um, for a scholarly audience, but I was really imagining kind of, um, you know, classes and, and undergraduates reading it, but also, again, to try to engage um, a broader audience um, because of the anniversary. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the the things when I when I first wrote it, I was really focusing on the women's political activism and all of these women um, come to the suffrage movement very strategically, right? The, they see the women's right to vote, or in some cases, their community, men and women's right to vote, as a way of addressing um, major issues that, that their communities are dealing with. And those mm-hmm. issues are different across the groups, right? What African-American women are Um, you know, again, the violence, Jim Crow, lynching, um, you know, disenfranchisement in the South of black men is, is different, um, not completely different, but, but different from say what native women are advocating for, which is tribal sovereignty. um, And uh, the fact that their governments aren't recognized and native people are legally wards of the federal government, which is different from what Chinese and Chinese American women are concerned with, which is often immigration policy and um, particular kinds of prejudice and stereotypes against Chinese um, community, which is different, right, than, than the stereotypes and prejudice against African-Americans or um, the, the um, Hispanas, as they would have called themselves in New Mexico, who are concerned about language rights and land rights. Um, mm. So, but they all, um, all of the women I write about ultimately see the right to vote as a, as a way to, um, fight for those things. So, so that's also very different from why white women are coming to the suffrage movement, right? Um, they come for, for their own reasons and, um, from different places, right? White women have a lot of, um, you know, they have a lot of white privilege. And so, but the issues they're concerned about are really specific to, um, you know, places, kind of the limits of their sex, right? Um, And race and sex for them are not oppressive. It's only sex. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they, they come across, uh, they kind of interact in different ways. And one of the things when I kind of rewrote after getting feedback on the first draft, which was the, the comments were, we don't really see how this is about suffrage, right? Um, it was about activism, but not suffrage, and which I thought was interesting. Um, but again, speaks to that, like, we just kind of don't have a framework or didn't have a framework um, for, for kind of understanding how this activism was, in fact, suffrage mm-hmm. activism. Um, and so what I did was I tried to kind of put in these more familiar moments, these things that are definitely suffrage, very familiar suffrage moments, these parades. Um, very familiar suffrage leaders are in there. So Alice Paul, um, mm-hmm. uh, Anna Howard Shaw, Carrie Chapman Catt, um, people that, that you know, you've probably heard of if you've, you know, kind of run in, across suffrage. Um, Susan B. Anthony's in there a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, so that it's it, it was kind of in a familiar context. And then I could sort of say, okay, this is familiar. 
they're talking mm-hmm. to these people or are in these places that you've heard of. Now let's push it a little further. Kind of how did they get there? Why were they there? What were their motivations? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the, the, the observations that I kind of came away with after doing this was um, for the groups of women who were not black women, right? So for the other groups of women of color, um, they have a really different experience. Anti-blackness is, and I'm not sure I actually use that term in the book, but anti-blackness is pervasive, right? The white suffrage movement um, has a lot of anti-blackness and there's great scholarship, right? I mean, I I don't pretend to be the one that kind of came up with this. I draw on um, Rosalind um, Terborg Penn and Martha Jones and mm-hmm. um, kind of, you know, a, a whole generation of um, scholarship on black women and the suffrage movement. Um, and, and that they had a really different experience, right? Um, they were mm-hmm. often refused and often kind of rejected. And there were a lot of efforts to keep them, um, sidelined mm-hmm. native women, Chinese and Chinese American women and, um, Hispanas, there's a, there are different kinds of stereotypes and there are kind of romantic and exoticized stereotypes that, uh, alongside some really awful stereotypes, uh, but they're able to kind of mobilize some of those, right? And so, for example, um, there's a real interest in sort of traditional Native cultures, which the rhetoric at this time is that they're disappearing, right? Soon the Indians will vanish. This is kind of the, the vanishing Indian moment. And um, so there's a real interest in kind of hearing from, uh, you know, kind of the last of Native people. Mm-hmm. And there's also, um, and Native women, I think, Native women put this um, argument out there, which is, you know, um, in Native cultures, in many Native cultures, right, women already have uh, equality of rights, or women already have some mm-hmm. of the... Um, uh, rights that that white suffragists want, right? So the right to divorce, mm-hmm. the right to sort of um, custody um, of children, um, the right of, to own property, right, or control property, or political um, mm-hmm. power, and and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy or, or Iroquois mm-hmm. um, are often the the group that. Um, white suffragists are very interested in precisely because of these matriarchal traditions, also the Pueblo, Mm -hmm. right? So it's native women and and native men in some cases who are saying, who are educating white suffragists about this. And this goes back into the early part of the the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But so white suffragists are interested in hearing from native women and they particularly Mm -hmm. are interested when someone like Gertrude Bonin will appear in front of them in right a buckskin dress with her hair in braids looking like an Indian right and Mm -hmm. I put that Indian in quotes right Mm -hmm. but so she and she knows this she calls her dress her drawing card she knows that if she um, kind of performs a, a certain identity she can have access people will invite her to speak suffrage clubs. And they do. And what she does, and a lot of these women, it's the same thing. Once they get on stage, they don't necessarily give the audience what they expect, which is kind of stories or songs or tradition. They say, here are the problems our community faces today. And here's what you need to do to help us. Hmm. 
and again, for, um, for some of, of black women don't have that experience um, with suffrage organizations, the white suffrage organizations, but these other women of color do. Um, and so, so they're often invited to things. Black women have to do a lot more insisting on being part of the conversation. But again, they also have, they're also having their own conversations within their own community. So I was also, again, like I said, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, um, journals like The Crisis, right? They're all talking about what suffrage means for African-Americans, um, men and women, um, mm. and why the community should support Black women's right to vote and things like that. Mm. So I was kind of, tr- I was both really had to show how these conversations connect with the familiar white suffrage story, but then could kind of follow them into the communities. Um, that these women represent and talk about what what conversations were happening to an extent in those communities. I think there's a mm. lot more work to be done there. Um, and I hope I kind of showed a little bit of the possible uh, ways to go about that. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, and and yes, I think you you did uh, accomplish what you were aiming for there. Uh, and just thinking about the complexity of how uh, you know, even your your readers are asking you to um, um, draw those connections between um, mm-hmm. the story we all are more familiar with, and then these stories that you're uh, seeking to introduce. Yeah, um, it this this question kind of draws a little bit on on some of those comments, but um, so in addition to all of this other kind of complexity. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating um, and was really generative for me was how you're paying close attention um, to the diverse influences, but also the transnational influences and, and, and especially those um, trans-Pacific influences that you highlight in, in your discussion of Mabel Pinghua Lee. Um, and, and in addition, those of those influences from indigenous nations. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that that piece of the book and that trans-Pacific um, kind of orientation of the story that you're telling? Sure. Yeah, that, you know, you asked me and I never answered kind of what was most surprising to me <laughs> in the sources. And I, I mean, I think this this part of the story was the most surprising to me. I, I don't know that it should have been, but it was. It was just fun to find. Um mm. And so uh, I found Mabel Lee through, again, these looking through, you know, I was just throwing terms into the newspaper databases, suffrage, mm-hmm. suffragist, um, you know, Chinese suffragist, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you have to think about the kinds of terms that were coming up in the, the late 19th, early 20th century, which mm-hmm. can get a little dicey. But um, in any case, I found, again, the sort of coverage about this 1912 New York City parade, and a few weeks before the parade, Anna Howard Shaw, who's president of NASA, National American Women's Suffrage Association, um, has a meeting with a group of Chinese um, Chinese women from Chinatown, um, Chinese suffragists, and Mabel Lee is there. And then later, Mabel and these, um, it's her mother and, and a couple of other women who have been active in the Chinatown community, um, they all march in the 1912 parade. And there's a great deal of newspaper coverage of this. Their hmm. pictures are in the paper, they're interviewed, um, you know, and it goes on for a couple of, like, I would say two months, right, kind of before the parade and then after the parade. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
And I, so I was, you know, this is the classic, what's up with that, right? That's always a good question. When you find something that you don't, right, that didn't fit my stories. I was like, what's, I, what is happening here? And so I just, I got really interested in her story. And there were, um, there was a, a one scholar um, who had written about her, a couple articles, but there wasn't a ton about her. And again, I think the framework, people didn't quite know what to do with that. And what it is, um, I discovered, was that um, the Chinese Revolution of 1911 happens in October of 1911. Um, mm -hmm. And Americans are really interested in this for a variety of reasons. There's, right, there are a lot of um, business and missionary interests in China at the time. Um, it's a Republican revolution, right? It's overthrowing the Qing Empire um, and establishing the Chinese Republic, not the communists, right? That, that happens later. This is a... Mm -hmm. um, and it and what's really interesting about that is it's right. It's very connected to the diasporic community in the United States, um, right? Sun Yat-sen, who is one of the leaders of that revolution, um, had been living in Hawaii both when it was the Kingdom of Hawaii and then um, when it became a territory of the U.S. He does an enormous number of fundraising tours, traveling throughout the United States and Britain um, to raise money for the cause, and so it's it the revolution itself is a transnational revolution and Chinese Americans and Chinese living in America are paying close attention, right? They are mm -hmm. all aware of this. Um, and part of Sun Yat-sen um, and the revolutionaries um, kind of advocacy of, of, mo of modern China is includes women's rights. And so mm -hmm. after when they're establishing the provisional government um, in early 1912, um, the conversation about women's right to vote is being debated. And the rumor comes to the United States that the government has enfranchised Chinese women. It's more complicated than that. It's really the province of Canton. It was sort of left to the provinces um, or Guangdong. But um, in the, people in the U.S. think that that's what's happened. And so it kind of blows white Americans' minds because the stereotypes about China are that it's backwards, right? China, mm -hmm. Immigrants from China... Right. The Chinese Exclusion Act uh, or Restriction Act, as Beth Lou Williams calls it, um, right, has severely limited immigration from China and stipulated that China, the very few Chinese immigrants who can come in um, cannot become naturalized citizens because they are seen as so uh, different. And so right, the idea of U.S. citizenship is just too much. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so these stereotypes about the Chinese that have resulted in these immigration policies um, don't match with kind of a modern nation that is enfranchising women. And mm -hmm. so white suffragists take this up as an argument for, you know, American men, you got to get together. You got to get with the times. China has enfranchised its women. You should be enfranchising us. This is embarrassing, right? Mm -hmm. um, this puts us in the backwards position and that's not at all. Uh, kind of the way the world should be. And so they are very much inviting um, and interested in hearing from Chinese women in the U.S. And you see a number of these meetings um, between white suffragists and Chinese women's groups um, in across the country. So in Portland, Oregon, in Cincinnati, Ohio, in uh, Massachusetts, and then this, this one in New York City. Hmm. And so the parade then highlights these women. Um, and as I said, Mabel Lee was um, a speaker at the meeting. She's 16 years old 
at the time, she's a high school student. She is apparently incredibly charismatic. Um, and the white suffragists invite her to lead the suffrage parade down Fifth Avenue. She's part of a, a group of uh, mounted horsewomen who are going to lead the parade. And then it's all very staged. That whole parade, um, central a central theme is about the, the Chinese women um, and the Chinese revolution. And so the women from Chinatown are marching with banners that allude to that. And they talk, they use, one of the banners says, light from China, right? Which again is this reversal. And right behind them is Anna Howard Shaw carrying a flag that says, NASA catching up with China. Hmm. And that's the picture that is on the cover of the Women's Journal um, that is, has the articles about the parade in it, right? So at the moment, that was really central to white suffrage conversations. Um, and again, Chinese women are, are, are impacting those conversations, are giving them the information. And that got lost, right? That got forgotten. Um, that was the, you know, it's not part of the histories that we tell. But in fact, in 1912, and, and really through the next couple of years, um, that's a theme that you see pop up in parades, in, in writing, um, in things. And so, um, you know, for me, it really reminded um, me or, or revealed kind of these trans that suffrage is a transnational conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And for Mabel Lee, she continues to have suffrage conversations with white suffrage groups, but she's also most of her energy goes into thinking about women's rights in the New Republic of China. Um, she's very involved with student Chinese student um, organizations, um, and again, most of those students um, they are basically foreign exchange students. They they won't stay in the United States. They can't. They can't become citizens. They'll go back to China and they'll be um, kind of members of the leadership class that are building the new republic. And so mm. she's having conversations with them, drawing from the Chinese Revolution. Um, but also from the suffrage conversation she's having, um, she ends up at Barnard College and, you know, the hotbed of, of activism. Um, and so she's kind of pulling these things together, but thinking about women's rights in China. Yeah. And, and I should say, she's not alone, right? I saw, and I have a few little moments, right, in Hawaii where similar kinds of the revolution is sparking these conversations among Chinese Americans in Hawaii and in California and in, as I said, Oregon. So um, she's not alone. Yeah. That to me was such a a learning moment in the book um, and really highlighted for me the ways in which if, if suffrage has been told as a, in an international context, it's usually a transatlantic one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that really transformed the way that I was thinking about it. Um, yeah, thank you for that. So you've talked a little bit about this, but in these, in these past couple of years in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2019 and 2020, um, for obvious reasons, many people were grappling with kind of, in particular, the unfinished business of suffrage. Uh, so the incomplete work of the 19th amendment, 
which didn't actually result in women of color and indigenous women being able to vote. Um, the racist attitudes and actions of many uh, uh, white suffragists, um, particularly some of those who have been really valorized in sort of standard narratives, and then also current day rollbacks of voting protections for people of color. So as you say in the book, um, the centennial really needed to be a moment um, of reflection about what actually transpired in this history, who has been remembered and for what, and who got left out. Um, so recasting the vote was perfectly timed to amplify and bolster those um, important conversations. Um, and I wanted to, to hear a little bit about how your research helped you think about the centennial. And were you surprised by how it turned out to be commemorated and discussed? Mm. I mean, I will say it was just so exciting to be can part of those conversations. It was really hard to get the book out in time. It came out in November of 2020. Um, mm. But I'm so grateful I did because it, it, they're just, um, just were an incredible um, kind of group of people, scholars and public historians and kind of just um, folks kind of in each state really thinking about how to commemorate this. And I do think that um, the conversations, perhaps influenced by things like, um, you know, kind of discussions around like the Women's March and, and just generally kind of broader um, conversations where people have taken the question of race seriously, I think, recently. Um, but also a number of scholars who were writing for this anniversary and who were really um, – wanting to make sure that it wasn't just a kind of um, valorization of the same women that we've talked about for a long time, right? And to look at how, um, you know, some of their choices, uh, you know, kind of set up the the 20th century and the ongoing struggles for the right to vote. And again, I, I mentioned Martha Jones and her book, Vanguard, is fantastic mm -hmm. for really pushing away from 1920, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the it became an anniversary celebration that really kind of interrogated the year that it was celebrating, mm -hmm. right? What did 1920 mean? Who got the right to vote? Who didn't? Who already had the right to vote, right? Again, I'm a mm -hmm. Western historian. You know, there are like 14 states in the American West mm -hmm. where women had won the right to vote before 1920. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, uh, you know, I really, and I give a lot of credit to organizations um, who were putting on talks and kind of doing uh, events for trying to really invite scholars who could, who could push those boundaries. Um, and I feel really, like I said, honored to be a part of that. So it's certainly not, um, you know, over, I, I don't think, but I do think that the scholarship and the discussions that came out of the anniversary have changed uh, the narrative a little bit. But, you know, one of the ways I open my talks is um, I show a, a screenshot of if you put suffragist into Google images, um, you know, it still comes up mostly with images of white women, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so sometimes there'll be a tab for like African-American women. Um, mm -hmm. 
But it, uh, so I think a lot of stories and new books um, talking about racial diversity, also to an extent, sort of kind of sexuality and the role of, um, you know, lesbian women or women who were partners with women. Um, Mm -hmm. In this uh, thinking, I was on a board for the, um, it's called the National Votes for Women Trail, in which Mm -hmm. um, uh, they got a grant to place um, uh, historical markers, um, and they had a lot of money for this. It was pretty astonishing um, in every state. Um, and this, this, the they really the board made sure right there was a real emphasis on diversity, diversity, religious diversity, class diversity, racial diversity. Um, it's still hard because of um, right the requirements for primary source material and having to kind of be very carefully prove there's a a lot higher bar, like what you can put on these signs. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I do see it kind of um, moving into these spaces um, of public history. And I think that's great. And I'm really, you know, I was really happy to be able to contribute to that. And I, I think there's a lot more, you know, there were more African-American women just in terms of numbers mm. than there were some of the women that, I, that I'm writing about um, mm-hmm. who were involved in suffrage. So I still think it's, uh, um, it's, it's there's been a, a lot of work done on African-American suffragists, really incredible stuff. But there's still a lot more room for all of this. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think I was excited about the way these conversations went. Um, I think that it was, I think there was some really tough questions and good questions that were asked and a willingness to kind of engage it. Um, but there's still room for a lot more of this, this history. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. And that it opens up more, more of these kinds of great conversations. Um, so recasting the vote, has already, you know, as you mentioned, it came out in November. It's only February as we're recording this. It's already been reviewed and cited by a wide range of media outlets, many of which have put them on their must-read list for 2020, including Ms. Magazine, The New Yorker, The New York Times, <laughs> Publishers Weekly, and National Public Radio. And you yourself have authored or co-authored a number of um articles uh, and essays about the research for non-academic audiences. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of engagement with the public um, and cultivating a broader audience for this project really matters for, for this kind of historical scholarship. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It, it was, it's been very exciting. Um, And, (laughs) and, you know, a little overwhelming, Um, but I, uh, again, I, I hope that, um, you know, my book will lead people to be curious about kind of following up on um, either these women or their communities and, and reading more histories about them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, part of the hard part is when you have kind of a really brief space um these are not the kind of the bigger context, right? The, the story of federal Indian policy in the 19th century of assimilation and, and the destruction of tribal cultures 
isn't really always well known. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. such important context for understanding why the Native women that I write about became politically active and the ways in which they became politically active. Um, You know, the Chinese Revolution, I sort of have to explain Mm -hmm. that in order to kind of um, talk about the the Chinese and Chinese American women that I'm writing about. So mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, you know, in some of these cases, I have to do that kind of um, quick education before I can get to the suffrage um, mm-hmm. aspect. And that's a little tough. But again, I've found people really receptive to that. Um, and again, that it's not a story that they're as familiar with. And mm-hmm. so I do hope that it, um, again, encourages them to kind of explore further. Um, mm. And I think, as I said, there have been um, the different panels I've been on, folks have been really great about inviting uh, multiple scholars um, and people who are are writing about this moment in different ways. So like Brenda Child, I've been on a couple panels with her um, with her um, her writing, but also her films about the jingle dress stance um, and mm-hmm. Ojibwe women and these new tradition new traditions, right, that arise in precisely this moment. And so, you know, I, I do think um, I hope that my book can kind of open up some of those conversations and lead to um, people exploring. Yeah, yeah. So, in, in addition to the really rich. Um, scholarship um that's here it's you know the kind of book that's um open to those broader audiences so for teaching and for um uh, uh for public engagement um like that i think it was it was really effective so um dr cahill we've taken up a lot of your time today but before we go i just wondered if you could talk a little bit about um what's up for you next mm. now that this book is out yeah, that's a really, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I have so many potential places to go um, that I am kind of paralyzed at the moment. Um, it's, there were definitely kind of things that I didn't get to discuss or had to be cut out of the book um, because it's it's still a long book. Um and so, for example, Carrie Williams Clifford, um, who's the African-American woman that I write about, she's a poet and her poetry, she's really using it um, to write kind of her history. She writes poems about sort of the different events that she's living through um, and, and thinking about how African-American history and particularly African-American women's history um, fits into a national narrative at a moment where it's really being erased, right? This is the moment, the rise of kind of the plantation myth and, and romance of the antebellum South. Hmm. And um, her two books of poetry have been, are available. One of them was republished in kind of the, the 70s. Um, but some of her poems um, I came across in the newspapers that haven't been published and are really powerful. And, and so I've thought about kind of following up on that. Um, mm-hmm. I've gotten really interested in the African-American suffragists in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, across the state, uh, mostly in the cities, but, but in some of these small towns too. And uh, I did kind of a, a project with my class last semester that I'd like to follow up on a little bit. But mm-hmm. as I said in the beginning, I had 
<laughs> a number of years ago now, um, embarked mm-hmm. on a different book project, uh, which will, I think, be the next book. There might be some articles before this. But it's um, tentatively titled Indians on the Road. And um, I wanted to think about how uh, the building of highways um, along the West Coast, uh, particularly Northern California, which, as I said, is where I'm from, um, but Mm -hmm. through Oregon and Washington, um, what that meant for the indigenous people whose lands those highways go through, right, in terms of, um, you know, literally how roadways could be used to um, disrupt sovereignty, um, how it reorients space um, and travel routes, um, how tourism along those places may or may not um, incorporate Native people. Mm-hmm. And into the 20th century where um, during termination and relocation, highways become kind of an, an important site of struggle. Um, in terms of land, again, land um, rights. So that one, right, would that research would bring me closer to home, which I would enjoy. Um, and it also plays to my interest in environmental history, um, as well as uh, kind of, again, Native, Native history and, and Western history. Mm. So that's mm. probably what I'll do, but I don't know what order. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Uh, I think that we all look forward to seeing what kinds of projects you move on to next. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And thank you for your work and for this book. Um, it's, it's really a phenomenal um, contribution to women's history. Um, and I'm really thrilled to be able to be here to talk with you about it. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you so much. Those were great questions. Uh, I appreciate it. Great. Thanks. Bye.